0: the next session to have your brain stuffed okay do you have a date with carbon-14 and that's the correct answer all right so here's the outline of the things that we're going to be going through so I'm gonna do a little review of some really basic stuff like what makes up atoms, because that's going to be part of what we're going to be talking about. How many times did I say it, Harold? How many times? Make sure that bomb shelter's got a can opener. Ain't much good without a can opener, I said. (laughs) So here we have atomic explosion. We're dealing with atomic particles here. So there's the structure of an atom with the nucleus, and then the electrons going in their orbitals around the nucleus. And so the atom itself is the smallest unit of a chemical element consisting of the nucleus and the electrons. The electron has a negative charge and almost no mass, almost no weight. It's a tiny, tiny, tiny amount, pretty insignificant amount of weight. But that negative charge is important. All right, then there's neutrons, which have no charge, but they have... Uh, a mass unit of one, atomic mass unit of one. And then protons, they have a positive charge and also uh, a tam- atomic mass unit just about one. So they're almost identical to the neutrons in the weight. We round it off to say they're both just plain one. And then the atomic mass is the sum of the number of protons and the number of neutrons. And so the atomic number is the number of protons, and that's what determines what the element is, the number of protons. Isotope is a word. Iso means same, tope means place. So the word means same place. And that's where it's a variant. It's still carbon in this particular example, but it has a different atomic weight because it has an extra neutron. So the number of protons is the same, so it's still carbon, but with the number of neutrons, it's heavier. Okay, so we have carbon 12, we have carbon 13, they're both stable, they don't decay, no radioactive decay, and then carbon 14, which is unstable and breaks down. Okay, molecules are then combinations of atoms that bind together, So water is the best known, so it has one atom of oxygen and two atoms of hydrogen. And so you see those green electrons there making those bonds so that there are molecules of water. I thought you said the chemical composition of water was H2O. So there's the periodic table of the elements uh, as we have it and uh, shows these numbers going from 1 all the way up to 118. So those are the different elements. That number is the same as the number of protons, the number up in the upper left corner of each box. So that's the number of protons, so that's the number of the element. The number of protons is what determines which element it is all right so there's a white box around carbon because that's what we're going to focus on so it's got number six there because it has six protons and here is showing you all three of the isotopes carbon 12 with six protons and six neutrons so its atomic weight is 12. Carbon-13 has six protons and seven neutrons, so its weight is 13, and 14 has six protons and eight neutrons for carbon-14, and that's unstable. So you can see that carbon-12, the most common, is nearly 99%. Carbon-13 is a little over 1%, and carbon-14 has 12 zeros after the decimal point telling you that how tiny, tiny amount that there is. Well, it's such a tiny amount because it's unstable. It decays and falls apart. It wants to shed a neutron, is that
1: correct? Say again? It
0: wants to shed a neutron. Well, yeah, it breaks down and it actually has a neutron. It doesn't shed the neutron. The neutron actually falls apart into a proton and electron. And because it does that, it becomes nitrogen. What was the I'll, I'll show you that. What the meaning of the percentage? Out of all the carbon there is, 98.89 percent is carbon-12. 1.11 okay. percent is carbon-13. OK, now the kinds of radiation which results from the breakdown from the decay, an alpha particle consists of two protons and two neutrons. So I use red for the protons, positive charge, and blue, neutral, for the neutrons. That's an alpha particle. So alpha decay occurs. For example, using the example of uranium, an alpha particle is kicked out. There it is, getting ready to go. There it goes. So after that alpha particle leaves, the uranium becomes thorium because it lost two protons and it lost two neutrons. So the weight goes down from 238 to 234 and the number of protons decreased by two. So it's number 90 thorium instead of number 92 Uranium. That's because the alpha particle kicked out. It was unstable. It left. So that's how the uranium becomes thorium. It's got a different number of protons, a different element. And they're showing you how they match up on the chart there. So uranium is number 92. Thorium is number 90. Two less protons. Yes? All right. So there's that alpha particle. Well. It so happens that that alpha particle is the same thing as the helium nucleus. Helium has two protons and two neutrons. So that alpha particle picks up a couple stray electrons that are floating out there, and it becomes a helium atom. So helium is a byproduct of the decay of uranium, all right? Okay, beta radiation. All right, so you have an electron there. It's essentially an electron. So here is the example here where beta decay, so there's thorium. You see the neutron in blue falling apart. It leaves behind what's now a proton And the beta particle, essentially an electron, gets kicked out. So that's beta decay. So the weight is still there because the proton and neutron weigh essentially the same thing because the electron weight is so insignificant. That's beta decay. All right, so there you see where thorium becomes protactinium. Why? Because it gained a proton. That neutron broke down into a proton and the beta particle, the electron. So now its atomic number is increased by one because it now has the new proton. I don't know if this is a good time to ask, but the the kinds of decay that you're showing, which ones are dangerous? We're getting there. Okay. OK. just a tiny bit too early, (laughs) tiny, tiny bit. Gamma radiation. Okay, this is the one that's pure energy, pure energy. Very intense, high-frequency energy. This is the stuff that kills. It's so intense, it destroys our DNA molecules, our uh, other molecules in our body. Cells die and then we die bomb releasing gamma radiation mm-hmm. or with chernobyl falling apart or the fukushima plant in japan when the tsunami hit it some years ago mm-hmm. that's what you don't want to be exposed to is the gamma radiation so here is showing that very intense Gamma rays, that very high energy radiation. That's the bad news stuff. Well, let's compare all these things so you can see how they compare like you're asking about. So the alpha particle has that positive charge because it has two protons in it with the two neutrons. Beta particle is that one negative charge because it's essentially an electron. And gamma radiation has no charge. It's just pure energy. Okay. The speed that, at which they travel, okay, connect, compared to the speed of light, the letter C represents the speed of light. Okay. So the alpha particle travels at 8 tenths of the speed of light, 80% of the speedy, speed of light. Okay. The beta particle, 99 percent almost the total speed of light not quite and the gamma radiation is the speed of light okay so it has for the alpha it has that helium nucleus geometry it's an electron for beta and gamma is just light energy no particle just energy now what can be stopped by and this gets to what's dangerous and how a few inches of air is all you need to stop an alpha particle just a few inches of air so it's not dangerous beta you need a few sheets of paper or maybe a bit of aluminum foil or something okay that's a bit more but with the gamma radiation you need inches or feet of lead Lots of protection, Okay, Lots of protection. Does that answer your question? Yes. (laughs) Yes? X-ray machine? I'm sorry, louder. X-ray machine for the gamma? Well, okay. X-rays are not as intense energy as gamma. Gamma is the most, X-rays are next. So that's why with X-rays, they give you that lead apron that's this thick, it's okay. See here, gamma is the worst, farthest to the left, and x-rays are not so intense. OK, it's a lower frequency. OK. Can you say how that happens? That just emitting energy instead of emitting? OK, I'm sorry. Louder, please. particles come out compared to the alpha and beta radiation. Um, because it's just pure energy. It'll it'll happen along with. It won't be just by itself. You'll have you'll have you can have alpha particles and the gamma radiation simultaneously. Okay? It's not just one or the other. Whoops, let's see what are we doing here? Okay, now let's talk about the concept of half-life, half-life. In other words, how long does it take for half of the specimen to decay, to fall apart? So picture a pie here, and this is for carbon specifically now. And again, they take some data and extrapolate it out. They haven't been measuring it for that number of years because we haven't been around that number of years. Okay, but well, we have, but we haven't been doing this that number of years. Okay, so after each 5,730 years, you get half of half, of half, of half, of half. And you get the idea that using assumptions, and we're going to talk about these assumptions pretty soon, but using the assumptions that the evolutionists use, it would take at least 80,000 years to not be able to measure any more decay. There would be still a tiniest amount that we just can't measure. But again, remember, this, I have to keep saying this over and over, using the assumptions that the evolutionists use, because we're not really talking about this number of years. But that's how they think in terms of this number of years, because of their assumptions, which we'll get into. Hey, what's this, Gazelle? Carbon 14? Chemistry equations? Do you enjoy your job here as a cartoonist, Gazelle? Should be drawing a dog instead. All right, now let's talk about how carbon 14 forms and falls apart. So here's the magnetic field of the planet, okay? It shields us from solar radiation, the radiation from the sun it helps protect us. So when this radiation strikes the atmosphere, the upper atmosphere, carbon-14 is formed. Now, the atmosphere that we breathe is 78% nitrogen, 21% oxygen. Now well, that adds up to what, 99, okay? Of that last 1%, nine-tenths of the last one percent is argon and then everything else is the the one-tenth of one percent so but we want to focus on the nitrogen so here's that solar radiation striking the atmosphere so you get these really intense energy waves from the sun that are hitting these nitrogen atoms in the atmosphere and so you see i put six red dots there for this, I'm sorry, seven red dots for the seven protons in nitrogen. All right, what happens is that high energy knocks around some neutrons and they're bouncing around like billiard balls. And so then a neutron hits that nucleus of the nitrogen, bounces out, a proton it goes away like so so there's the neutron striking the nucleus okay and it bounces out the proton but the nucleus the nitrogen the neutron sticks in the nitrogen nucleus say that four times fast <laughs> the nitrogen sticks in uh, I blew it The neutron sticks in the nitrogen nucleus. All right, so now there's only six protons. So now that nitrogen has been changed to carbon. It's the number of protons that determines what the element is. So you count seven red dots over there, six red dots over here. Protons gone, the neutron sticks. So its atomic weight is still 14, the same as nitrogen. But it's now carbon, because it only has six protons. Are we there? Okay. So that's how carbon-14 is formed. High in the atmosphere, solar radiation striking these nitrogen atoms in in the atmosphere. And so there you are. Nitrogen, number seven, becomes carbon, number six. But it still weighs 14, because that neutron replaced the proton. So it still weighs 14, okay. So this is one in 10 followed by 12 zeros. So infinitesimally small amount of carbon-14. All right, so this forms in the atmosphere. So that carbon combines with oxygen in the atmosphere, that other 21% of the atmosphere, and now, how we have carbon dioxide with the carbon 14 atom. Well, plants take in carbon dioxide and they'll take in whether it's carbon 12 or carbon 14. It's still carbon. Yes? Are we good? Are we good? If
1: you can say so. <laughs> we're
0: not, because it's you who should say we're good or not. OK, carbon-14, chemically, is still carbon, whether it's carbon-12 or 14. So the plant says, OK, it's still carbon dioxide. But it's carbon-14 instead of carbon-12. It's got more neutrons than regular carbon. Plant takes it in. Well, animals eat the plants. We eat animals, we eat plants. So we all have carbon-14 in our bodies. Aren't you thrilled to learn this? Okay. We all have carbon-14 in us. All right, so here's how this happens. Photosynthesis, plants breathe in carbon dioxide, becomes part of the structure of the plants. Chloroplast, that's where the photosynthesis takes place, takes water from the soil, takes the CO2 from the air, and makes sugar molecules. And these sugar molecules make cellulose along with other stuff. OK, so that's when we eat our salad we just ate. That's how we get this stuff. And when we eat meat that came from animals, well, they eat plants. So that's how we get this carbon-14 into our bodies. So while life is still there in the organism, we're still alive, we have carbon-14 coming in and replacing what decays in our body. So in terms of the total amount of carbon. It doesn't It doesn't replace that very same atom, no. But the total amount of the carbon-14 is in equilibrium. But when the organism dies, so the horse dies, no more carbon-14 comes in because it's dead. It's not eating anymore. But the carbon-14 that's in, that dead animal is decaying. So with time, there's less and less carbon 14 in the remains of the critter. All right. So here's carbon 14 and it's getting ready to decay. So this is that, what kind of decay? Beta decay. So this neutron is getting ready to fall apart. So now it becomes the proton and the electron falling apart the proton stays and the electron called the beta particle leaves beta decay so now instead of being carbon-14 it's now nitrogen because it has one more proton than it had before the decay that's beta decay All right, so there you are again. So carbon with six now becomes nitrogen with seven protons. All right, so that's beta decay. So that's how carbon 14 falls apart. Okay, all the stuff with measuring techniques is way too technical. We're not gonna mess with that. Say thank you. Now, here's the key. The underlying assumptions, and these are the part, this is the part I really want you to get. There are three assumptions that underlie this whole method of radioactive dating, whether it be carbon decaying to nitrogen, whether it be uranium decaying to lead or any of these others, argon, potassium, rubidium, strontium, all these other radioactive elements all have these three underlying assumptions. This is the part I want you to get, especially. The U word, okay, uniformitarianism. So the root is uniform, meaning the same. So uniformitarianism is a doctrine, and I use the word doctrine because, after all, Evolution is really a faith-based system. It's a belief system. It's not based on science. This doctrine states that physical processes have been going on in the past at the same rate, unchanged, at which we observe them today. So we measure a rate of radioactive decay today, and the assumption big assumption is that it's always decayed at that same rate unchanged in the past. Okay, you've got to get that one. All right, so here are some of these assumptions, these three assumptions. Okay, the ratio of carbon 14 to 12 has always been just the same in the past as we measure it today. That's one of these uniformitarian assumptions, that the ratio, the amount of carbon-14 compared to carbon-12 has always been the same. So that means they're assuming that the rate of formation of carbon-14 with the rate of decay of carbon-14 has reached an equilibrium that's always been there. Okay, is that, got that? Okay, unchanged ratio, never changed. Well, we have beautiful, real, scientific, measured, observational evidence to show that that's not true. Okay, so what, 114 years ago? In Siberia, a meteor exploded in the low atmosphere. It didn't quite make it all the way to the planet. It exploded low in the atmosphere And so much energy from that explosion just devastated, wiped out this forest. Huge territory. We're talking hundreds of square miles. Fortunately, in an area that was not populated. Well, even some 12 years after this event happened, this photo was taken showing the devastation. That kicked up a tremendous amount of carbon material into the atmosphere from all these what had been living organisms full of carbon. So studies of tree rings, they took samples from these different rings, each ring a different year, you know, each year the tree adds a new ring of growth. And so they took samples from these rings uh, from that time and the few years subsequent to that event and measured the amount of carbon 12 and carbon 14 and showed that it was significantly altered, a big change in the ratio because of all that stuff that was kicked up into the atmosphere from that meteor exploding. Okay, that's one instance. How about volcanoes throwing a tremendous amount of carbon into the atmosphere and altering the ratio of Carbon-12 and carbon-14. Okay, this is the one that was a few years ago in Iceland. And I have to write down the name of it to pronounce it. It's Yokul. That's the name of the volcano. <laughs> All right. It shut down aviation in northern Europe because of all the stuff in the atmosphere would mess up the jet engines and they'd crash. So people were left in airport lounges for two or three days. All right. Now, just a tidbit here. Volcanoes produce 200 million tons of carbon dioxide a year. 200 million tons of carbon dioxide a year from volcanoes. Okay, automobiles, 24 um, million tons. So who's causing the supposed global warming? Okay, it's not us and it's not happening anyway. Not like they say. So what else can happen to change the amount, the ratio of carbon 12 and 14? Well, remember I told you we have solar radiation striking the high atmosphere, and we have protection from this magnetic field? Well, is the magnetic field today as strong as it used to be? And the answer is no, in a very big way. Because every 1,400 years, the magnetic field is half as strong as it was. Whoa. So 1,400, 2,800, 4,200, 5,600. So in 5,600 years, this thing is, what, about a sixteenth as strong as it was. Hmm, that certainly changes the business of what's going on in the atmosphere and the formation of carbon-14. So, you see, three big reasons why the ratio of carbon-12 to 14 has been changing. Uh, We'll just go on to this one. Well, there's still another thing. How about these supernovas? that are in our part of the world, of the galaxy. So tree rings that were studied from, from back in 774, 775 A.D. show big changes in the amount of carbon-14 from a supernova that blew at the time. So we have all these reasons to show that the ratio of carbon-12 to 14 has not been always uniform in the past. Okay, so that shoots down that assumption. And then we have this business. So Genesis 6, 5 through 7. Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. So God said, I will wipe man from the face of the earth. That's what he did, and that's what the flood was all about. So this is a painting by Ivan uh, uh, Ivanovsky uh, called The Ninth Wave. You can see there's some survivors of a shipwreck and there's a mass sticking out there. This next wave is going to come and finish them off. Great painting. So this captures what happened with the flood, changing the amount of carbon that's circulating in the biosphere of the earth's uh, business with the living organisms the plants and the animals okay what was the purpose of the flood to judge the world and bury all that stuff like we talked about plants and animals people uh, being killed all that carbon was taken out of circulation so what happened carbon And this huge monster number here, 20 million units. Now those units, each unit is a billion tons. Each unit is 1 billion tons. So 20 million billion tons of carbon ended up in rock. Limestone, for example. Calcium carbonate. And there are other carbonates as well. More carbon ended up in oil, natural gas, all sorts of stuff. So that would alter things greatly as well. So here we have different forms of carbon that were taken out of circulation that are no longer in plants and animals, including diamonds and coal as well. All right, so I think that pretty well kills that first assumption, right? Okay, second assumption, that the original amount of the parent element, in other words, the one that's going to decay, was 100% of the sample, and the original amount of the daughter element, that which is formed by the decay, was zero. In other words, you're starting with 100 and zero percentage. But no one can know what that was because, as God said in Job, were you there when I laid down the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. So we can't know what that original ratio in that sample was. Now they assume it was 100% of the mother element and 0% of the daughter element. Unknowable assumption. So were you there when you laid down the foundations of the earth? Well, here we have early chemists describing the first dirt molecule. All right. Third assumption is that the rate of radioactive decay, as I mentioned before, has always been the same, always been constant, no change, same rate. So here is an analogy with uh, an hourglass, that the rate that that sand can pass through that narrow constriction never changed. Never changed. Well, we weren't there. But actually, from a whole other different talk, we do know that the rate did change. But that's a whole separate talk. Can't do that one and this one at the same time. And it changed by a factor of over 250,000 times. So that experiment with uranium decaying to lead showed that the rate of radioactive decay in the past had to have been at least 250,000 times faster at a point in time than it is going on today. That's experimental evidence. It's not assumption, zero assumptions. So we know that the rate of decay had to change. We know that the amount of carbon-14, the ratio of carbon-14 and 12 changed from either the volcanoes or from that meteor uh, exploding or the supernovas exploding or the weakening of the strength of the magnetic field of the planet protecting us from radiation. So all these underlying assumptions for this system of dating things with either carbon or other radio- other radioactive elements simply is not accurate. It is not accurate. OK, so that other experiment used the amounts of uh, uranium and lead and the helium that was formed as the byproduct and showed that the rate had to be greatly accelerated so that one and a half billion years worth of decay took place in something less than 6,000 years. So these huge numbers they give us with this radioactive dating are not accurate. The system simply Cannot be accurate with those assumptions. But those assumptions are necessary for them to get the numbers they get. So that's how we get billions of years worth of decay in less than 6,000 years. Are we good so far? Are you a
1: test
0: afterwards? <laughs> oh, yes, there's always a test. There's always a test, and we have resources out there to, for you to explain. There's a great book called Thousands, Not Billions that explains this. And it's, and it's written for the layperson. Okay. So, billions of years worth of decay in a short period of time. All right. So, you're doing cave drawings with carbon sticks. Yeah, a thousand years from now, archaeologists will go ape trying to date these suckers. <laughs> I think it's funny he said, go ape. Yeah. All right, so coal, diamonds, carbon dioxide, and methane. These are all carbon things. So they take the samples, these things that have carbon in them for the samples to try and date them. So you see I highlighted coal Carbon dioxide, methane, diamonds, but there's these other things as well pieces of wood, eggshells, bone, etc. So, what are we told by the evolutionists? We were told that a tree falls over in the swamp, and over thousands of years it slowly gets buried by stuff accumulating over it, and then with huge amounts of time it finally gets compressed into coal. Okay, that's the story we're fed. Well, we have these trees that are upright, that are through several layers of rock. You can see the layers of rock here that supposedly represent many thousands of years. So is that tree gonna stand there for many thousands of years waiting to get buried before it decomposes or termites or fungus gets to it? the answer is no. These trees had to be buried in a catastrophic event, Hmm, a flood maybe with multiple layers of rock formed during the, f- the same flood. This compresses time tremendously. They call these polystrate trees, meaning many layers, strata, layer, poly, many many layers, trees, because they extend through many layers of rock. Well, so they tell us this business in the swamp, how long ago? They say, <laughs> and this gets me, Instead of just simply saying 300 million years, it's 299. (laughs) Instead of saying 360 million years, it's 359. It's supposed to be more believable about being accurate. Okay, so that's how long ago they say coal was formed. So if it really is that old, Should there be measurable amount of carbon-14 in that coal? And the answer is no, because what did I show you earlier? That by 80 to 100,000 years, we'd no longer be able to measure carbon-14. The amount was so tiny left over. So the answer is no, we should not be able to measure it. But guess what? There is a The U.S. government has a coal bank at Penn State University. So coal samples taken from different mines are put into these special bags and they're stored. The atmosphere inside these canisters is um, one of the noble gases that it's not going to react. No oxygen is there, so there's going to be no reaction. The noble gases are inert and it's just going to sit there doing nothing, no changing. So here is some of the uh, samples taken from these different examples of uh, coal mines. And so you see the location there, uh, the name of the coal seam, and then the assumed ages because of the way evolutionists date the layers that they find this stuff in. And you see these are all in millions of years, so anywhere from 34 million up to 300 plus million years but they all have measurable carbon-14. Oops, Hmm. that is a the problem. These things cannot be millions of years old. They can only be thousands of years old because they have measurable carbon-14. Well, what about dime? Oh, so then in response to that, the evolutionists might say, well, yeah, but coal is soft and water could wash stuff in or out and change your sample. And you say, "Okay, let's deal with diamonds, since diamonds are the hardest natural substance known to man, and they're almost one hundred percent coal a carbon carbon. So how do diamonds form so here is showing uh, the layers of the planet, and so the crust is on top there, and uh It's about, what, 30 miles thick or so, 20 miles thick. And then underneath this, there's the hotter stuff that's down below that's, when you get inside, it's molten rock, it's liquid, it's so hot down there. And the crust itself is broken up into these various plates. They're called tectonic plates. They move around. Today, they move around about an inch and a half a year, pretty slow. During the flood, they were moving about five miles an hour. That's fast for a big chunk of a continent, very fast, called continental sprint, instead of inching along. So here, especially around the Pacific Ocean, there's what's called the Ring of Fire, where we have all these zillions of uh, volcanoes and earthquakes happening because of these crustal plates moving against each other. Well, so here is what's called a diamond pipe, which is where this hot stuff from down deep comes up through a vent in the crust. And using uh, some pretty sophisticated physics and and finding these what are called xenoliths, foreign rocks in this pipe, They were able to calculate by the positions of these things how fast the stuff was coming up out of the lower parts and they calculated at 20 to 30 kilometers per hour so that would be roughly about uh, what 14 to 22 or so miles per hour so that stuff was moving fast like that so That's how diamonds are formed, is from the stuff that comes up from the deep. How long ago? Well, the evolutionists will say, from 990 million years ago to 3.3 billion years ago. All right, long time. So should we be able to measure any carbon-14 in these? The answer is a bigger no than for the coal. And this is how they say that this you know, stuff happened. But with the biblical model, all of this stuff was laid down in just one year. So all these millions of, uh, of years, uh, at least 500 million years, are compressed into one year by Noah's flood. And that's why they deny Noah's flood because it wipes out their time scale, literally. So where are diamonds found today? In these countries that are tinged in yellow. And it's interesting to me that they kind of form two belts on each side of the equator. And so these are beautiful gemstone quality diamonds that were not used for the experiment to measure carbon 14 because they're too expensive. So they use these industrial grade diamonds. Okay, still diamonds, but a whole lot cheaper. All right. So same question, should there be carbon-14 in diamonds? The answer is no. Well, here are the different mines that the samples were taken from, and they all had measurable amounts of carbon-14. Amazing. So that takes care of the argument, well, coal is too soft. It's stuff might wash in or out. Nothing's going to wash in or out of a diamond. Well, how about here in the southwestern U.S.? There are several uh, places where carbon dioxide uh, is trapped down in the earth. And when they have these uh, natural gas mines, they also get some carbon dioxide that come with them. And so here were different samples from these uh, different locations uh, to the east and north, well, east, And some to the north of here and so the supposed ages there and here's a couple more of these whoops wrong way a couple more of these and they had these supposed ages in millions of years and they all have carbon-14 in them shouldn't be there now these numbers here that you see, 44,000, 57,000, again, are taking into, based on those assumptions, those evolutionary uniformitarian assumptions of no change in the rate of decay, no change in the ratio, all right? And that they, it a 100% mother element, zero daughter element. So those same assumptions apply to this. So here is this business of the, of the natural gas and the carbon dioxide, and it shows, indeed, carbon-14 is in all of this stuff. So these numbers translate to these, again, using the same uniformitarian assumptions. This is a test. For 30 seconds, the station will conduct a test of the emergency broadcasting system. A boom. All right, so again, this business of radiation and the change of things. Well, how does this affect us? Okay, we had this quote before, this fossil isn't just a mineral replica of the original claw, it's likely two-thirds dinosaur residue, specimen 70% organic material, meaning it's got carbon, meaning it's got carbon-14. So you saw this list in the other presentation earlier where there's uh, all these specimens of dinosaurs that have carbon-14 in them. So it's not just contamination in a specimen like the evolutionists try to say. Okay, you saw this here with this business of just a few thousand years here for these various dinosaur specimens having carbon-14. What about amber? Okay, there is measurable. Um, in this particular specimen, no measurable carbon-14. And so the question is, well, what happened with the specimen? But you look at a living shell, a snail shell, you kill it, measure it right away. Oh, it's 27,000 years old, according to their dating method. 27,000 years old. I don't think any snail has lived that long. Okay, you take a seal and you kill it. Oh, it's 1,300 years old. So here you have things of a known age with erroneous dates. Things with a known age with erroneous dates. So how can you believe the dates of a specimen that you don't know the age of? All right, so here's carbon-14. Beta decay, gains a proton, becomes nitrogen, and the beta particle is kicked out. So what happens in your body when carbon-14 atoms in your molecules change to nitrogen? Oh, oh, you're going to be sad to learn that over your lifetime, you have about 50 billion carbon-14 decays in your body. And we wonder why we have diseases. Whoa, I'm just full of good news here. All right. So in this representation of DNA. Carbon is what allows for double bonds and ring structures, for example, and the parts that make up the DNA, the, the bases, they call them. Well, when that carbon becomes nitrogen, it's not going to have those same double bonds and these molecules fall apart. That's called a mutation. Leads to death and disease. So single bond breaks in the outside part of the DNA and it falls apart. So then you, or if in the base itself you get a change, you're going to get the wrong kind of stuff when your DNA copies itself, when it's replicated. So you have all these various molecules that have carbon in them. These things fall apart. Your biochemistry can't happen properly. Okay, this work was actually done in Russia, showing this. How about carbon-14 formation during the flood? Well, here's the biblical chronology showing the various... Patriarchs and how long they lived when their son was born, how long he lived. So that's how we get the time frame that we've been around a little over six thousand years. Okay, but you get to Noah and look what happens afterwards. Look how those lifespans decrease madly. So that's due to genetics. Genes falling apart. Well, a part of that could have been what happened with this all this massive amount of accelerated decay, radioactive decay during the flood. So there's two main possibilities for when that accelerated decay occurred, either during creation week or during the flood. And since God said everything was very, very good Good, good, very good. During creation week, I think that pretty much just leaves the flood time for that intense amount of radioactive decay going on. And then after that, the decay within our genes, within our genome, and therefore our genes start falling apart and lifespans shorten. And that's the flood there. And then the one bee says to the other, no more, no more, I can't take it. That incessant buzzing sound of him talking. All right, so there are some other considerations. We mentioned the business of volcanoes. Well, guess what? They not only alter the ratio of carbon in the atmosphere, but so does atmospheric atomic bomb testing, which we did in the 50s. That would alter the ratios as well. Okay, so here's the quiz. I told you there'd be a quiz. Here we are. So after how many years should there be no measurable carbon-14? 80 to 100,000, okay? That's being very generous, okay? All right. Rocks and fossils that are supposed to be older than this age should be carbon-14 free or dead, okay? But carbon-14 is found everywhere. Initially, this was attributed to contamination by evolution. Oh, your specimen's contaminated. But no, every specimen is not contaminated. But now we know with more aggressive investigation this carbon-14 is It's real, it's inherent, it belongs there. It's not contamination. So I have a very big question for you, okay? Remember we said at the beginning that carbon-14 is formed high in the atmosphere, all right? Diamonds are formed deep in the crust. So how did all that carbon-14 get into those diamonds? Ah, big question, Noah's flood. Noah's flood sweeping all that vegetation off the surface, things getting very mixed up tremendously. Let's say the flood was so violent, we cannot appreciate how violent it was. Stuff got buried deep and then carbon became diamonds. Well, we have spiritual decay and renewal. So here we have again, (coughs) Exodus 2011, For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them and then rested on the seventh day as a model for us and reminder of how we were made from the dust of the ground, not from some pre-existing animal. And the Lord put the breath of life into us and Adam became a living being. And then... We go to chapter three and the fall, the disobedience. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, so there was this visual attraction, pleasant to the eye, desirable to make one wise, she took the fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her and ate. See, you can't just blame her because he was there and he should have said, no, don't do that. But he went along with it. 1 Corinthians 15, for since by man came death through what they did in the garden through disobedience. By man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. So in Psalm 55, cast your burden on the Lord and he shall sustain you. He shall never permit the righteous to be moved. And here we have a command in Colossians. It's a command, not a suggestion. See to it that you are not taken captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy. Can you think of a better definition for evolution than hollow and deceptive philosophy? Which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. This is a command. This is why you're supposed to go back there and obtain these resources share with others. So, this is radioactive dating. Someone's gotta have some questions.
1: Does this not make sense to the people?
0: Okay, so you asked why doesn't this make sense to the people who believe in this stuff? Well, okay, there's smarts and then there's wisdom. All right, lack of wisdom overcomes the smarts. Why is that? Well, our sin nature, we want to be in charge ourselves we don't want to have to be obedient to god so we deny him so we think we don't have to mess with him Pray
1: that their own professional organizations will quote,
0: cancel them that also okay evolutionists people who say people who say they believe in evolution fall into three groups first of all there's a huge great number of people who just simply swallow without thinking what they're told Teacher tells them something, they read it in the book, oh, this must be true, see it in the movie, magazine, online, and just swallow it, okay? When I was taught this stuff in school, I just swallowed it, okay? I said, okay, fine. Then there's a smaller number of folks who are, say, professional scientists or who really dig into this stuff, and they know better, they see that it doesn't work, but afraid of losing their job or their grant money, or their position in the university, And so they keep quiet. Then there's the third group that's quite small. And these are the priests of evolution. I call them the priests of evolution. It's a religion, it's a man-made religion. And they're out there pounding the pavement saying, it's real, it's a fact, it's an established fact, over and over and over. And these are the ones who are less nice about it sometimes. Uh, For example, Richard Dawkins is a retired professor emeritus now from Oxford University. He was a zoologist. And he's written some, I don't know, 15, 16 books now, uh, in which he sometimes pretty nastily talks about God and is very anti-Christian, anti-Bible, evolutionist, uh, very much a secular guy. And he makes no bones about where he stands. I mean, he, he, I've got some quotes of his that pretty pretty scary. And so when he's going to have to be standing in front of God and give his answer for what he's been doing, it's not going to be pretty. Yeah. But he's just one guy. He's the most notorious one at the present time in the English-speaking world. But there's others as well so there's that small group well and they are always trying to make the christian science the believers look like fools and yeah they call us the idiots and the fools and we don't know what good science is
1: listening friend do you know where you'll go after you die without the gift of jesus it will be an eternity in hell without god good works will not get you there For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. To spend eternity with God, we must recognize that we are sinners in need of Christ. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. To be assured eternal life, we simply talk to God, admit you are a sinner, and ask him for his free gift. You must mean the words to get the, to be answered. Jesus is waiting to hear your request. If you have asked him for eternal life, he has come into you and he will change you. Start reading the book of Ephesians and see what God says about your new life. After you understand the book of Ephesians, you can start reading the Gospel of John. Next, find a good Bible teaching church. Tell the pastor about your decision for God and be taught. If you contact us, we will send you a new believer booklet free of charge. Congratulations and grow in Christ. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by snail mail at P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona, 86431. We are happy to help with your new life in Christ or even answering Bible questions. Again, congratulations on your decision for Christ.